Welcome to the Shilakama Extractive Podcast. Today I'm pleased to welcome Alexandra Redhead. Alexandra is an extractive lead tax expert at the Intergovernmental Forum on Mining, Minerals, Metals and Sustainable Development, otherwise known as the IGF. Alexandra was named one of the top 50 most influential individuals in tax by the International Tax Review in 2017. She was also awarded the 2018 Advanced Mining and Resources Award. I had the pleasure of meeting Alexandra at Oxford University when she was a student of the renowned economist Paul Collier. Alexandra, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. It's lovely to meet you. Thank you for having me, Sheila. I'm delighted to be here. Fantastic. So I thought we could explain something that is well talked about, but it's not terribly well understood by a lay person like myself. When we speak of uh, carbon tax, what do we mean? Well, a carbon tax is essentially a tax on emissions of carbon-based greenhouse gases. So it could either be levied on the emissions themselves or on energy or fossil fuel use. And the purpose or the objective behind a carbon tax is to put a price on those emissions, to encourage users, businesses, governments to essentially produce less of them. So to try and change behaviour through uh, putting a price, in this case, a tax on carbon. So that's interesting because uh, so really it's a motivate behaviour that is consistent with the desire to counter the negative effects of carbon emissions on the climate. So what do we know then about how successful or not successful uh, this initiative has been? So there seems to be fairly widespread consensus, particularly amongst economists, that carbon taxation is one of the most effective ways to reduce carbon emissions to, to address climate change. Uh, a number of countries have enacted different forms of carbon taxes at the national level, and that might be a carbon tax, as I said, which is a tax on emission, but it could also be uh, through um, a carbon trading system, essentially, where businesses require a permit in order to um, emit carbon and they can then trade those permits as well. So a number of countries have, I think that somewhere between 25 and 30 countries have enacted some form of carbon tax policy. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of countries that are yet to do this, and in particularly some of the biggest emitters, so countries like the United States, uh, China, Australia, um, these countries are yet to to implement some form of carbon taxation. So uh, there's still a way to go. In terms of um, how successful they've been, I think those countries that have them in place uh, report uh, having generated additional revenue, having reduced carbon emissions. So there's been a, a wide degree of success. There are some challenges, however. Some critics argue that the taxation is a distraction, that the only real solution to climate change is actually through innovation. But on the other hand, you would say, well, tax creates an incentive for innovation. Um, there are also challenges around calculating the social cost of carbon so an accurate tax can be applied. Um, Furthermore, some critics would say that tax, it's a tax on consumption, which can be regressive, um, particularly if it's applied at the household level. 
So lower income households will typically spend more on consumption, which means they're likely to pay um, higher taxes in this regard. So I think, you know, there, there's been some success, but there are still some challenges remaining. Um, there also is a strong opposition from some uh, industries, in particular from, from mining. Uh, there are notable exceptions to this. For example, BHP in Australia has enacted um, various carbon policies. There's also a disagreement within the Canadian mining industry. So it's not to say that all um, companies are pushing back against this, but there has been some opposition, which has meant that countries like Australia, for example, have struggled to put this in place. Sure. So uh, a couple of things uh, I'd like to follow up on, if I may. So what is uh, the argument, if at all, made by some of the major countries for not introducing the uh, carbon tax despite what seems to be evidence of uh, effectiveness? Well, I think I can speak um, particularly uh, in relation to Australia, which is where I'm from. And I think the big challenge there has been um, concerns around how this would affect industry. Uh, business and that obviously um, big carbon emitters like the mining industry um, would have to pay potentially a heavy price which might make them less competitive in relation to other uh, mining companies elsewhere in the world. Um, so I think, you know, that's a key challenge for Australia is getting industry and business on side, particularly, you know, in the case of Australia, we still have, um, we still rely quite heavily on coal uh, for energy production. So for that reason, it can make it difficult to get a carbon tax policy over the line. There just isn't always um, sufficient political support and, and support from industry and business. But I think, you know, we will get there eventually. Um, it's just having the right conditions politically to make it possible. So, so is the focus then primarily uh, on corporates rather than uh, say domestic consumers? Yes, certainly in, in the case of Australia, the focus is on corporates because of the um, significant role that our mining company plays. So that's where I think if we're going to curb carbon emissions, the focus has to be on carbon intensive industries. Um, and you know, ultimately that will trickle down to the household level as well over time as energy options change, for example, towards uh, greater use of renewables. Sure. So uh, I've also learned of uh, this advent of what is now called the global minimum tax for extractives. Could you briefly explain the concept to uh, the listeners, please? Yes. So it's very exciting time in the world of international tax. There's been a lot of change in recent years um, in relation to addressing the challenge of corporate tax avoidance, space erosion and profit shifting. Uh, and in particular, we have what's called the global minimum tax, which has been proposed by the OECD G20 inclusive framework, which is made up of 140 countries. So these 140 countries have agreed to implement a global minimum tax on corporate profits. This is also called the global anti-base erosion rule. So this essentially means that the global global profits of multinational companies with an annual turnover of more than 750 million euros will be taxed at at least 15%, the agreed rate. 
Um, and the way this will work is that the effective tax rate will be calculated annually on a country by country basis, meaning that each entity that's part of the multinational group must pay at least 15% in each of the countries where they're based. So if one of those entities within the group pays less than the agreed rate of tax to its host country, then the home country, so where the parent is headquartered, will collect the difference between the tax that they pay in that jurisdiction and the 15% global minimum rate. So in effect, the tax that should have been paid in the host country will be transferred to the country where the multinational is headquartered. So the intention is to try and eliminate or significantly reduce corporate tax competition because um, you could have one entity within the multinational group that's paying less tax um, in that particular jurisdiction, but ultimately the parent company will have to pay it where they're located. So it makes that lower tax rate, if you like, redundant or ineffective um, because the tax will be paid somewhere. Mm -hmm. So uh, if, if you think about uh, the corporate uh, entities who are the taxpayers, the mm -hmm. uh, countries in which they are domiciled, and the countries in which they operate, extract and, 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 and trade the, the, uh, and, and export the commodities. In this scheme, uh, whose interests are we trying to address? And, 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 and you know, can you revisit you know, what is the current imbalance that we are trying to redress? It's a good question. So, I mean, one thing I should note is that um, this global minimum tax isn't, doesn't apply exclusively to extractive industries. So it's a global minimum tax that will apply to all multinational corporate corporations with a turnover of more than 750 million euros, which of course will catch certain large uh, extractive industry companies as part of that. Um, the question of in whose interests is this, um, you know, whose interest is this trying to address? I mean, I think the, the argument for, for this global minimum tax is that it will reduce corporate tax competition and profit shifting related to tax competition. So over the last 40 years, we've seen average corporate tax rates decline in every decade, in every region. So in 1980, for example, corporate tax rates around the world were around 40%. In 2020, the average is 24%. So we've seen a massive drop off in corporate tax rates as countries try and compete for investment. Um, and, and this has made many countries poorer than they would have otherwise been, including developing countries. And it also contributes to the rising inequality that we see today in many countries. So the, the intention here is to set a floor, if you like, um, on tax competition. So it should take the pressure off countries, in particular developing countries, to compete by lowering taxes. It should also increase corporate tax revenues globally by about 150 billion. So your question about, well, if you've got, you know, you've got the host country, you've got the, where the mining company is operating, you've got the country where the parent company is located, you know, in, in whose interest is this? I think the answer should be, it's in the interest of all of those jurisdictions to adopt a global minimum tax, um, particularly um, probably the host country where the mining operation is located, where arguably, you know, tax incentives have always made less sense. Um, countries might have felt pressured to offer them, but to what extent they were actually effective at attracting investment, particularly in the extractive industries, has been questionable because you can't pick up and move the mine to another country. It depend, you know, depends on where the resource is. And so incentives have often been uh, 
um, less effective and in some cases redundant, meaning a loss of revenue for that country. So I think it should, you know creates a global good, if you like, by reducing tax competition, and that should be particularly useful for countries where there is actually productive activity taking place. Right. So um, you are right that uh, the global minimum tax uh, concept is in fact across industries, but because the, the subject of uh, my podcast is in extractors, I, I wondered whether you could explain this notion of inclusive framework, which apparently has two pillars and, and one is more suited to extractives. Can you explain the difference? How is one of the pillars more suited to extractives where the other is not? Mm -hmm. Yes, so as part of the inclusive framework, which is this forum that the OECD and G20 has established, which comprises, as I mentioned, 140 countries, so it's very well, um, uh, you know, countries are very well represented there. Um, they, they, there are two proposals that have come from that forum. There, and we, were, we call them pillar one and pillar two. So pillar one um, creates a new taxing right for businesses that are selling goods and services digitally in countries where their users are physically located. So what we're trying to do with Pillar 1 is essentially enable countries to tax the likes of Amazon, Google, Facebook, et cetera. So these are companies that may not have a physical presence in your country, but notwithstanding that, they still sell goods and services to people or businesses that are in your country. So in the past, countries have only been able to tax companies that have a physical presence in their jurisdiction. What Pillar 1 does is it says that doesn't match reality anymore. We live in a digital economy where companies can be based anywhere in the world and they can be selling goods and services remotely. So we need to ensure that countries still have a way of um, taxing the profits earned from consumers that are in their jurisdiction. So what it does is it's, it establishes this new taxing right um, in the, the country where goods and services are sold, so often called market countries. Um, now, this pillar is not well suited to the extractive industries. Um, why? Well, for a number of reasons. Firstly, the extractive industries is location specific. So, you know, you have to be in the jurisdiction where the, the resource is located. Um, it's not a digital or consumer facing industry. Um, uh, so for that reason, this pillar or this new taxing right is not well suited to the extractive industries. Essentially what it would do if it did apply was to say, um, we're going to transfer um, tax revenue from the country where the resource is being uh, extracted to the country where the end product is being sold, for example. Um, so you would see a significant transfer of tax revenues from the resource producing country to the market country, which would seem very unfair and perverse, if you like, in this sector. So for that reason, the extractive industries have been carved out of pillar two, so that we're excluded from this new taxing right. Um, so the precise wording of that carve out is still being determined, but the intention is that um, this new taxing right for businesses that sell goods and services remotely or digitally will not apply to the extractive industries. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. It, it's, uh, it's interesting, uh, extractives notwithstanding the, the notion of uh, taxing 
if you wish, virtual services that are provided digitally without the need for a corporation to have a physical presence. Because if you think, for instance, of cell phone technology uh, and how uh, somebody somewhere has satellites that uh, are basically linking the cell phone world and the level of uh, cell phone penetration in emerging markets, you can see how there's really a lot of business and, and volume of trade taking place virtually without people ever putting boots on the ground. And the notion that we need new tax uh, systems to, if you wish, net this revenue and be able to uh, subject it to tax, I think is very uh, you know, appropriate at this time, especially given the world will only get more digital. And so I, I think extractive notwithstanding, it's, it's something worth uh, looking at. I, I wanted to talk to you about the uh, discussions that uh, the IGF and the Africa Tax Administration Forum had, among others, uh, about this framework. Was there concern from the Africa Tax Administration Forum that uh, this new dispensation uh, might disadvantage African extractive producers? And if so, where did you end up in that investigation? Yes, yeah, so um, the IGF, we work closely with the African Tax Administration Forum to help ensure that the voice of uh, African countries and in particular African countries that are resource rich are reflected and heard in these um, international decision making processes. And so as part of that, we uh, issued a number of briefings for our members uh, on different aspects of these proposals that would have um, particular impacts on uh, resource rich developing countries. So in relation to pillar one, which as we've just discussed is this new taxing right um, for uh, new taxing right in the market country in relation to businesses selling goods and services digitally. Um, at the start of that process, it was still unclear whether or not there would be a carve out and exclusion for the extractive industries. So that was something that we were very concerned together with ATAF to ensure that that was taken on board by the OECD to make sure that the extractives were excluded because there were some, you know, some countries um, didn't agree with that, were pushing for, um, I guess there was concern at the start that if you, if you provide exclusions for certain industries from these rules, uh, it can create complexity, it can also create a basis for other industries to come forward and say, well, we should be excluded from these rules as well. And they might have um, less justification than the extractive industry. So there was, you know, there was, there wasn't um, consensus um, that the extractive industry should be excluded for those reasons. And so that was something that ourselves and ATAF were very clear to, it was very clear that we needed to communicate that strongly to the OECD, to the G20, you know, the reasons why this would not be appropriate and would result in um, very harmful uh, outcome for resource rich developing countries if extractives were to, to remain included. So as a result of, you know, our advocacy and certainly other groups as well, 
um, we've secured that carve out for the extractive industries. There's still some discussion as to how, you know, where does the extractive industry start and finish, for example, you know, do you include downstream activities, refining, processing, and so on. Um, so that still needs to be worked out, but the carve out, carve out is there. Um, turning to pillar two, which is the global minimum tax. So the global minimum tax will apply to all sectors of the economy. There is no carve out for the extractive industries because there is no real justification for extractives to be excluded from a global minimum tax. In, in actual fact, I think, you know, there are a lot of benefits of having a limit on tax competition for the extractive industries where in the past we've seen quite a lot of tax incentives being granted, um, particularly in developing countries to try and attract mining investors and oil and gas investors. And, and often, as I said, they, they've not always been very efficient or effective. Um, so the extractives is included in pillar two in the global minimum tax. What the, the concerns that we had together with ATAF um, were firstly around the tax rate. So you, you will have heard me say at the start that the globally agreed rate is 15%. Now we and ATAF would continue to argue that that's too low, particularly when you take into account the, um, the statutory corporate tax rates in many African countries and developing countries more generally are a lot higher than that. So the, there's a concern that 15% is too low and it potentially creates an incentive for um, countries to actually reduce their corporate tax rates to a minimum of 15%. Um, so to see it as a ceiling rather than a floor, which is the intention. So unfortunately, you know, we haven't been able to make as much progress as we would like on that issue. You can appreciate that with 140 countries, um, there's a lot of different interests. So the, the agreement is around 15%. Um, the other issue that we were concerned about was um, for example, in the extractive sector in particular, um, you often have uh, special fiscal regimes that provide for um, capital allowances. So it, that allow, uh, enable extractive companies to recover costs sooner rather than later because it's such a capital intensive industry. We have long lost carry forwards, large capital allowances, which mean that you can actually um, defer um, the payment of tax for a long time. Um, now, the way that the global minimum tax has been designed, if it appears that you, ha you have undertaxed income, so if your effective tax rate is less than 15%, then the parent company in the home jurisdiction will be required to pay that top-up tax um, to, to the home country. So that would end up with um, taxes being paid in the home country, say in the UK, before the tax would be paid in the country where the resource is located. So that would be a, a very kind of odd outcome, if you like. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it would be met with quite a lot of resistance by resource producing countries to see taxes be paid first elsewhere. So this was one of the issues that we had to deal with together with the OECD and the G20 on how those rules are designed so as to um, uh, yeah, to not um, negatively impact resource rich countries because mm -hmm. of those the specificities of the extractive industry fiscal regime and sure. the way the industry operates. Yeah. Sure. So you know what, what uh, interests me about this is not only uh, having some kind of international um, uh, dispensation, it is exactly what you said, that in terms of trends, uh, the marginal uh, tax rate of 15% would be considered by many pretty low. Uh, and, and so to your point, understanding that that is the baseline, not the maximum. 
uh, mm -hmm. is, is, is important as we articulate it, because the first thing is the OO, 15%, as you know, in, in some countries, it, uh, it goes even up to 30 and 35%. Uh, but to be sure, even if there is some kind of consensus, uh, Alexander, is, is the challenge not how, once the world reaches some consensus, uh, emerging market countries import this new rule into its tax regimes and builds the capacity to enforce it. I mean, uh, is that of concern? Because it's easy perhaps for uh, the Australian federal government to say this because there is enough capacity once a decision is made to then move forward. But African countries, Latin American and Asian countries uh, are still struggling with just uh, their own tax uh, regimes now and the capacity to efficiently assess, collect, and audit, et cetera. No, that's very right, um, Sheila, that the, particularly developing countries have enough challenges as it is administering the existing tax system, let alone now enforcing these additional rules. And I think here, um, you know, the, the onus is on the OECD and the G20 to help those countries um, put in place the necessary legislation um, you know, as a starting point, and then, as you say, to to have the capacity to administer it. One of the areas of interest, I think, for the extractive industry is also the interaction with investment agreements. So we know that in mining and oil and gas, uh, it's quite common to have a, a bespoke agreement between the government and the investor that governs their arrangements, including the tax arrangements. Um, and there may be issues there where perhaps certain incentives have been granted in those agreements that then mean the investor is paying less than the globally agreed rate. So what to do in that situation? Does the um, host government have any recourse to amend uh, that agreement to bring the level of taxation up to the globally agreed rate? Because, of course, if they don't, that will be considered undertaxed income. And so the country where the parent company is located will pick up the top-up tax. Um, so you can, you can appreciate that, you know, the host governments are not going to be very impressed with that result. So in our sector, in the extractive sector, th th there's important questions, not only in terms of how you implement this in your domestic law, but how you apply it to existing investments that may be subject to fiscal stabilisation provisions um, that are tricky to unwind and may also run up against, for example, bilateral investment treaties, uh, the risk of arbitration. So there's a lot of complexity here to make sure that countries can actually take advantage of this opportunity to the full extent. Sure. So here is my last question to you. Uh, and, and it relates to the uh, recent mega profits that uh, oil companies have enjoyed uh, thanks to the unprecedented rise in the price of crude. Uh, in part because of the Ukraine crisis and uh, the perception of potential shortage of the commodity in the market. Uh, I was quite intrigued and, and, and want to get a sense of how you see this by some of the countries in the global north advocating windfall tax because it was perceived that uh, you know, the oil company profit levels had cracked uh, the ceiling and, and warranted this. 
But this, of course, is uh, somewhat contrary to prior arguments in which when emerging markets countries wanted to introduce windfall tax, the, the argument was that that was destabilizing the investment environment. Are, are we seeing a change of heart? Uh, are we seeing a double standard? Or is there enough evidence to justify uh, this change of heart by some policymakers in the global north? I think it's. I think it reflects a little bit the changing view of the role that tax plays in creating a fairer, more equitable society. I think that um, you know a few years ago, uh, policymakers, particularly in the global north, might have been less concerned with that, but now. You know, the emphasis on corporate tax avoidance, uh, profit shifting, uh, you know, high net worth individuals paying next to no tax, rising inequality, uh, financial pressures post-COVID and the, the role that the state played in the response to COVID in many jurisdictions. I think that that's created a bit of momentum um, for policymakers to take a fresh look at taxation and the role that it, it plays and potentially be a little bit bolder and more ambitious in terms of levying a higher level of taxation on corporations. And I think this is reflected also in the global minimum tax. The fact that we can achieve consensus amongst 140 countries that tax competition is not a good thing, that it's harmful, and so we should set a floor that is 15%, you know, is part of this kind of movement or this change of heart or uh, a change of approach to perhaps be a little bit more bullish on taxation, and particularly as we saw, you know, oil and gas companies, whilst there was an initial dip in prices during COVID, they, you know, they rallied and they were making, uh, you know, big, big profits. And so there seems to be um, a stronger basis, I think, for policymakers to argue for a higher level of taxation now. And as part of kind of the efforts to rebuild economies post-COVID, to rebalance economies in favour of, uh, you know, in favour of workers. We're looking at things like wealth taxes now in a way that, you know, countries weren't talking about that seriously in the past. So I think a lot's changed. Um, that means now there's an opportunity to revisit our tax systems to make sure that they are fair and that they do deliver for, for citizens uh, as opposed to just corporations. Fantastic. Well, Alexandra, thank you very much. Uh, these were very uh, informative, and I appreciate your taking the time to speak to the Sheila Kamestructive podcast. My pleasure, Sheila. Thank you for having me.